WERU comes from our listeners and from Coastal Fine Art Alliance of Maine, offering the 18th Annual Gallery on the Green Juried Art Show, featuring a group of Maine artists offering drawings, paintings, original print, and fine art reproductions, August 13th and 14th from 9 to 5 in downtown Southwest Harbor. More information at cmainart.com, C-M-A-I-N-E-A-R-T.com, or 989-4655. A voice of many voices, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and on the web at WERU.org, grassroots community radio. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people, on the web at maincf.org. The Times 1001, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ryan Beard, is up next. Take a second first and go to the phone and call 1-800-643-6273 and do your part in keeping the media independent. 1-800-643-6273. Thanks. ERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, George Mitchell, Senator George Mitchell, is the subject of a new biography by reporter Douglas Rook. And in Statesman, George Mitchell, The Art of the Possible, Rook's covers the recent golden age of national politics when opposing parties work together to accomplish things for the good of the nation rather than the good of the party. And I'm so pleased to have uh, Doug Rook's in the studio with us to talk about um, George Mitchell and the uh, new book that uh, Doug has written called Statesman. And I'll remind listeners that they can participate, but not by phone, as you may know. Um, our radio station got hit by lightning a couple um, three weeks ago, and we're still making repairs to our phone system. So you can email um, any questions or comments throughout the hour at publicaffairs at weru.org. That's our email address, and I'll be able to relay those questions or comments to Doug on the air. It's also our uh, fundraising uh, period, and the pledge phone is 1-800-643-6273. And at the end of the hour, we'll be giving a copy of Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible by Down East Books, uh, Doug Rook's uh, new book, um, at the end of the hour. So um, if you would like to participate in that drawing, um, give us a call. So, Doug, welcome to Talk of the Towns. Great to be here, Ron. Tell us a little bit about your background. You're a reporter. You had um, many different reporting roles. And and what led you into the writing of this book? Well, I I, I was a career journalist, um, as as many of my colleagues around Maine were at one point. Um, I left the news business in about 2000. 
and but before that, I had I had already met George Mitchell and interviewed him, and I was kind of fascinated by the guy because although, um, you know, as a young editorial writer as I then was, you're you know you're impressed by all these politicians who have succeeded to the level they have. But Mitchell um, sort of went beyond that. I mean, when he answered questions at an editorial board meeting, he would not only answer the question, he'd give you all the background. And he knew the background. I mean, it was amazing how much the man knew. And beyond that, he went out of his way to be helpful. Um, he would ask you questions sometimes and about something you might need or if you didn't seem to be understanding what he was saying, he'd follow up. Um, so anyway, he had some skills that are not typical of your typical politician. So I think, it, and I don't know when it happened, probably sometime uh, toward the end of my uh, journalism career, I was thinking, you know, if I ever want to write a book, this might be a good subject. And after I did leave, Main Times was my last posting, as it turned out. Um, I uh, did interviews with him with the idea of having a book come out of it, and it did not at that point. That was around 2001, 2002. And I, but I never quite gave up on it. Mm. And lo and behold, 12 years later, Downey's Books gave me a contract. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> That's great. Well, remind – I mean, George Mitchell is still um, alive and well and, and uh, still doing some wonderful things. But if you could remind our listeners about some of the key elements in his career, some high points that we might not remember today but were really important. Yes. I mean, when I think about his career, I one of the phrases that occurs to me is that success is possible in many fields. Uh, because, you know, he definitely didn't have your standard career track. Um, he, according to his, his own testimony, he never really thought about politics until he was nearly 30 years old when he, out of the blue, got a call from Senator Muskie's office. They were looking for somebody local and reliable from Waterville, as it turned out, and he fit the bill. Um, he went to work there, learned a lot about the party from the inside, and that was really his experience. So when he um, ran for governor in 1974, he was brilliant, but probably not tested in the right way. You know, it, it was – I was not there for the campaign, but people who were say he was not he, – he was not himself in some key way. So he went back um, – he, he, he he wanted to be a lawyer first and foremost, so after that unsuccessful run, he went into law practice and was very good at that. Uh, because of his connection with Muskie, was appointed U.S. attorney and then a federal judge. And then most famously, he was appointed to the Senate by Joe Brennan. And I checked this. It's the only time in the, higher, the entire 100 years of uh, popularly elected senators that a Maine governor has ever made that appointment. It happens in other states more often. But so it was a unique event. Uh, he took full advantage of it and became, frankly, a great senator. And, and surprising the heck out of many of us, he became U.S. Senate Majority Leader. Um, so that was his political career. And it, it was kind of stunning when he announced his retirement from the Senate. And I still remember that day. I was in the newsroom, and I thought it was a joke. <laughs> But it was not. And, uh, but he had other aims and other ambitions. And that's what I was saying is you, know, you have to follow him around. One of the reasons the book is long, and it is long, is because I couldn't really leave out any of the lives of George Mitchell. So after the Senate, he immediately, almost immediately went to Ireland for almost three years of talks that led to the peace agreement there. He was then in the Middle East. Uh, he was, frankly, all over the world for his gigantic law firm, another story I didn't know much about. He actually chairs the largest law firm in the world. Um, this is typical of George Mitchell that we don't know as much about it as we might because he never 
promotes, really. But um, So the book is not a promotional effort, but I, I think it is an effort to put the whole length and breadth of his career before the public in a way that perhaps will um, get a few people to look at him again. Mm. What I, impressed me about the book is that, that I have lived through, and many of my uh, contemporaries have lived through, all of the events of George Mitchell's mm. life. And um, so we know the headlines, but we don't necessarily know the story that is behind the headlines, and you've provided that. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what Waterville, you know, he grew up in Waterville. He did. Tell us about that story or that part of the story. Well, Waterville is kind of a great story in and of itself. It was uh, one of the very few Democratic towns in Maine at the time that Mitchell was growing up. Um, I didn't know this. The, the the Franco community, the Irish community in Portland, uh, these were all uh, and were, were all the Democratic voters of Maine. Uh, immigrants to this country were essentially the founding of the Democratic Party in the North, because of course before that it was all Republicans mm-hmm. uh, from the Civil War onward. So anyway, he had a, his his father was a Repu- was a Democrat, and everybody in his family were Democrats. But he had a little protective cocoon to grow up in, and so when he became an actual Democratic politician, he had a background there. But his family is extraordinarily close-knit. Uh, amazingly enough, except for George, all of the uh, all of the Mitchells still live in Waterville. Um, and, and they are, you know, the backbone of the community still. So he had amazing support from a strong base, both moral, morally and in terms of all the other forms of support that uh, that people need. And, you know, it was a great background. Um, it's it, it can be very advantageous to come from a small town. Mm. Uh, and sports were important to him and his family. Well, and, and, and George is typical in this regard. He, he actually makes himself sound more clumsy and more inept than he actually is. He's actually a pretty good athlete, as his uh, second wife, Heather, would tell you. You know, he's pretty good at tennis. He was self-taught, but he really figured it out. But his, his brothers were great, were great athletes. His, his brother, Paul, was, uh, was the best baseball player in Waterford at the time, and his son, his brother Swisher, or John, uh, was 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 an amazing basketball player. He uh, he, he really was. And um, the other thing that's probably good for the ego is George Mitchell grew up being Swisher's brother. You know, he didn't become George Mitchell until much later. <laughs> so this this um, close knit family, um, this democratic um, kind of cocoon, if you will, yeah. um, uh, produced him as a young man. What were what was her any indication that he was going to be interested in politics at that time? No, no. I mean he, he. I think he was. I think he was telling the truth when he said until I was until I got to Muskie's office, I had no interest in politics. But he does say, and I think this is a line in his memoir as well, is by the time he finished in Muskie's office, which was only about two and a half years, he said, I had gotten a taste for politics. Mm. So he knew that he wanted to combine the worlds of law and politics, and he did it pretty Mm. well. And Muskie was a key figure, um, Maine, um, the United States, key figure in in Mitchell's um, early um, political life. Um, You devote a good portion of your book to Muskie, and tell us a little bit about that man and, and his role. You know, it, it is a unique relationship. I, there may be one, but I can't find any other relationship between two U.S. senators who succeeded each other um, that was non-family. I mean, there's some father-son combinations particularly, but um, they were incre- really close. And, you know, when you delve into the documents as well as the, uh, as the interviews, um, you see that Muskie trusted Mitchell in a way he probably didn't trust anyone else. You know, it, it was it was an unusual thing, and then of course you set up the dynamics of the mentor-pupil relationship, which can be very tricky. And um, 
I think they both handled it pretty well, uh, but occasionally you see some of the signs of, of strain there. But it is unquestionable that George Mitchell would not have been the politician and the senator he was without Ed Muskie. And, uh, and Muskie was very conscious of that role as kind of the father of the main Democratic Party, which barely existed before he ran for governor in 1954. And there were different temperaments. Um, did, yes. did did uh, did George uh, Mitchell learn from Muskie um, in terms of temperament? Um, I think he did. The, 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 Maybe what not to do. Well, there, there <laughs> was the, well, there were some things about Muskie's background which again are not generally known. Uh, probably the biggest one, and Don Nickel, who I have interviewed many times and and uh, hope to interview a few more times because he's he's the fount of knowledge about the early years. He he was there in 1954. He is the only one still alive who was. But Don, when he was asked about Muskie's outburst of anger, which could be strategic sometime as in a committee session where, where some senator was not prepared and needed a little dressing down, or sometimes it was just blowing off steam and, and people got in the way, <laughs> as it were, he traced it back to a, a nearly fatal accident when Muskie was renovating his house in Waterville and fell backwards down the stairs, uh, broke his spine and was in a coma for weeks. And uh, it's sort of a miracle he even survived, much less was able to resume a normal life because, you know, surgery wasn't what it was back then as it is now. And Don believes he was in more or less constant pain. And the people I've known who have had that experience, you know, you have to excuse some of what they do. Um, So that was a big factor uh, that I didn't really know about either. Mitchell um, definitely has a temper, um, but controls it better. And I think um, you have to, there was one uh, episode, Patrick, where apparently um, another senator was talking to him and they could could say, they said, I could just tell that Mitchell was getting angry. And of course, no one else knew, Mm. but he knew because he knew how Mitchell reacted to things. Yeah, we all have stress in our lives. We all get angry, but how we deal with it is important. How about the, um, the, the the environmental legacy of both men? How did that environmental legacy come about? Um, tell us a little bit about that background. Yeah, well, when Muskie ran for governor, um, there were a couple of different reasons, but one of the big reasons is he had his law office in Waterville. He was from Rumford originally, but you know both of those towns, uh, the, the pollution in the rivers was just beyond belief. I mean, today, if you bring somebody down to the river and saying what it was like, they don't believe you. Mm. I mean, how could this possibly have stunk to high heavens? How could it have peeled? the paint off the houses, but it did. That's how bad the papermaking process was in the olden days. So Muskie, uh, when he was governor, he tried to get the legislature to pass some anti-pollution legislation, got nowhere. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons he went to Washington was he figured he could do more there. And he was right. The Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act um, are the products of that. And here's another unique thing about their relationship is George Mitchell um, undertook and passed the last major reauthorizations of those laws, which are the building blocks of really of environmental law in this country. And Mitchell got through new versions, which did many new things. And again, that's a unique thing to have the founder of the law and then have somebody who intelligently reworked it so that it would, you know, work for a new generation. I think that's another unique accomplishment. Mm. We're talking with uh, Douglas Rook. Rooks with an S. Um, Doug is the author of Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible, a new biography published by Down East Press. And um, you can participate, but not by phone. Um, If you want to email us, um, our phone system is not working today. But if you want to email us, do that at publicaffairs at 
WERU.org. And of course, you can still participate in our fund drive by calling 1-800-643-6273. At the end of the hour, we'll draw from the watering can um, for a copy of George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible. And at the 5 o'clock hour, um, you also have the opportunity to, to th- those same people will have be in the watering can for Amy Goodman's new book, Democracy Now!, 20 Years Covering Movements That Changed America. Uh, Doug, um, as you um, took took this book, we we see this notion of art of the possible um, mm. as Mitchell as a George Mitchell as a negotiator as a way of seeing things. It seemed like he always had an end in mind, <laughs> um, so that he was leading people towards an eventual yes. solution. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, he he had some skills there that again are unusual in politicians. Um, and, and which made him effective in what you would have to say is political combat, particularly when he was Senate leader, where you are one of 100. Uh, a lot of people think the Senate leader kind of just tells people what to do. Absolutely not. <laughs> the Speaker of the House does a little bit these days, but the, the Senate majority leader has very few tools. So he had abilities, though. And I would say his key abilities in there was his wonderful memory. I mean, everybody talks about this. He can remember more than any other human being that most people have met. Uh-huh. But he also had uh, terrific empathy. So when people were talking, he would pick up nuances in what they were saying and feeling that they may not have even been aware of themselves and could guide things in a direction that was helpful. But the, the, probably the most important quality in that job as well was patience, patience, patience. Mm. You know, you have to be able to wait until the moment is ripe. And if you you try to force things along prematurely, particularly in the Senate, it just doesn't work. So he had those skills, um, but but you were you you mentioned he always had an objective in mind, and he did, uh, although it wasn't always clear to everybody around him what that objective was when he started. Uh, he was a legendary builder of consensus in the caucus, and this is more than anything what we're missing in Washington today. Um, he would take the caucus on a very divisive issue, and he would talk both individually with senators in his office, with groups, committees, and then with the whole group. And he would say, we have to have a position as a caucus on X. And probably the most famous example was the Persian Gulf War, which the consensus of the caucus was not to go to war which was very interesting given the pressures and the time. And this but was the first Gulf the, War? The Gulf War, yes. So yes. this was um, George Bush Sr. in the presidency? Yes, and I use that as an example of what happened because when George W. Bush we went to war in what m- most people believe was a less clear-cut case, um, certainly there was no U.N. resolution for it, uh, none of that stuff, and yet the Democrats were all over the place. In fact, a majority of them voted for the war. The first time they stuck together, and that really wasn't just because of George Mitchell, but it was these techniques we talked about. He would—he was a consensus builder, and he wouldn't let people leave the room until there was one. Mm, mm. So he had to build relationships with senators um, that, um, again, he was not elected when he first went, and right. he was appointed, yeah. um, the new guy. But how did he make those relationships? Well, he cultivated certain key figures, one of whom was Robert Byrd, who was the Democratic leader of the day. He was briefly still in the, in the, the majority leader there. Then they went back into the minority for six years and then returned. And he clearly cultivated Byrd. Um, it annoyed some of his aides, and they said, you know, what is this stuff with, you know, he's, he's praising his speeches about the history of the Senate. Why is he doing this? Well, he had a very definite reason, and Byrd reciprocated. 
it was pretty clear that uh, Robert Byrd, who wasn't fond of very many people, was fond of George Mitchell. And you see this also in his relationships with the older Southern Democrats, who, of course, were a very different political generation and, and orientation than he was. And uh, he started one of, the, one of the first young Democrats to go to the Senate prayer breakfasts, mm. which turns out to be a great way to get to know these people and really win their trust on issues that have nothing to do with Senate business. So um, he worked from the beginning. Um, I don't think the majority leader position entered his mind for quite a while. But uh, when it did come up, he was ready. Mm. And how did it come up? How did that um, story well, emerge? It started in the in the 86 election, actually. Mitchell was the head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, which is a very it was even more important then than it is now, but it's still pretty important now. It's the basic funding for Senate races that is distributed nationally, and Mitchell was in charge of that. But he did a lot more than raise money. I mean, a lot of people did pretty good work there. Uh, he went out and campaigned with all of these people, helped them with their strategy, and, and pulled off some amazing upsets in that election. So he had um, nine new senators, most of whom were very interested in voting for him when the majority leader thing came up. It, it came up specifically because Robert Byrd decided to step down. He was, he was an old-style leader, and this was new-style politics, TV politics, and he wasn't, frankly, very good at it. So he actually went off to become the appropriations chair, which is a great job to have, and, uh, and Mitchell had the opportunity to run for majority leader. Mm. So um, the, the, the most interesting question that I've come up with is, is what in Maine um, in the 20th century led to all these really interesting politicians who, who um, kind of do things differently than we know politicians. So I'm thinking of, of Margaret Chase Smith, um, whose name has come up more recently in yes. her speech of conscience. And, and uh, we're hoping that, that uh, many, many people might have a speech of mm, conscience of mm. their own. Ed Muskie, Bill Cohen, George Mitchell. Um, were there factors in Maine that kind of led to their um, rise? Well, I think there were a number of factors there. Uh, w- one of them was a strong two-party system. You know, you don't see that in other New England states for the most part. Um, Ed Muskie created the Democratic Party as an equal player. Um, I mean, it it took time to build it. But, you know, we had and to some degree still have a balanced political system. I think that's very important because unless you work within those kind of systems, you're you're not going to be successful in Washington where divided government is a reality. I don't care even if, you know, one party holds all the major posts. It's still divided government because there's the difference between the two chambers and the disagreements that always exist with the president. You know, it doesn't matter – uh, you know, if we think, okay, we'll elect all Democrats or we'll elect all Republicans, we'll get better service. Maybe, maybe not. So, you know, the uh, so the the balanced two party system is important, but the specific um, genesis of those figures was within side a strong political organization. And in some, you know, in the big cities in the old days, it used to be personal. You know, the, there was the the machine. You know, and, and everybody was related to a particular family, clan, or or club. Um, I think that having strong party organizations is key here. And and I didn't realize until I did the research for this book how important parties are in selecting candidates. You know, kind of guiding candidates and encouraging them not to vote, you know, on a litmus test of issues. This is unfortunate. You know, we have all these special interest groups of various stripes who say you have to vote this way or we're not going to support you or we're going to campaign against you, and they do, mm. even though they might agree with you on 90 percent of the stuff that they're interested in. And that's very unfortunate because parties are 
need to be strong, but they need to be flexible. And in the days that we're talking about, uh, these leaders were nurtured. And I sometimes wonder if we don't have, you know, some more muskies and Margaret Chase Smith around, but they just don't have the opportunity to advance in the way they did back then. Mm. And and can you tell us a story of nurturing, examples of what that looked like or, or how we might get back to it? Ah, yes. Well, I, I think, you know, Frankly, I would I would encourage the main Republican Party and the main Democratic Party to have a serious conversation among themselves because parties, to a large degree, are fundraising machines. Now, that's been true for a while, but it's really worse now. Um, candidate recruitment is very haphazard from what I can see. You know, people are running without really understanding what the responsibilities of the office might be. Um, these are all things that in the – well, I, I, I know the Democratic Party history best uh, because it's all there in the record with Mitchell. But um, one of his uh, – he, he actually handed off the job of party chair, which he had for two years. Um, this is in Maine. In Maine yep. to Severin Beliveau, who mm-hmm. most people know is a big-time lobbyist. Right. Uh, on, but before that, he was the party chair. And he really did a great job of organizing. They had a, a little operation on State Street in Augusta. They owned their own building, and they printed all the campaign brochures. They, um, you know, had what we would call phone banks today. They did raise money, but but the sums were modest by today. And they also had people researching issues, you know, doing real research on, you know, what the effect of the minimum wage increase would be. I mean, just stuff that, you know, only special interest groups do. When parties do that, they can achieve those kinds of consensus, durable consensus we're talking about. Because each issue affects the other. So it's a part of a whole. When a party truly comes up with a party platform, those factors are taken into into effect. Since Mitchell's day, uh, we have had some capable people as party chairs, but I don't think they have the organization anymore. Mm. And I think rebuilding that is going to be absolutely vital. I'm more and more convinced of that the more I look at it, because mm. you're always going to have this the noise in the background, the Koch brothers or the, whoever your fa- un- unfavorite billionaire is trying to influence things. But if the races themselves and the parties themselves and the candidates themselves are together to begin with, that stuff doesn't matter as much. Mm. Now, there's no there there in terms of parties. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break to talk about our uh, pledge drive. We'll come back in a minute as we continue our conversation with Douglas Rooks, author of a new book called Statesman, George Mitchell, and the Art of the Possible. 1-800-643-6273. That's the number to call and show your support for this kind of programming on WERU. I'm Amy Brown here with... Joel Mann. (laughs) And uh, we are here to just invite you, encourage you to call in, show your support for Talk of the Towns, Ron Beard, all the great topics that he's covered over the years. Ron if, Beard has the longest running talk show on WERU, That's I right, right. Yeah, just yeah. a few years after we started. Yeah. And used to be twice a month. He's doing once a month now, but still has just innumerable people and groups that have been through the station and been able to get their word out because they've appeared on Talk of the Towns. That's right. You never would have had the opportunity to hear all these wonderful people that Ron has talked to over the years if you weren't listening to this radio station and enjoying the talk that goes right through the week. All the local production and all the hard work that goes into these programs really does need to be appreciated. And the best way you can do that is to call 1-800-643-6273. The spoken word, public affairs programming in our local area is so important. 
That's right. And, and we are doing fairly well on our goal, but we still have over $4,000 left to raise before we wrap things up tomorrow morning. We can definitely do that. We know with our generous supporters out there, we can do that. But we need to see the phones ringing, and we'd like to see it ringing during the public affairs block. The uh, book they've been talking about, discussing right now with author Douglas Rooks, they'll be having a, a drawing for that at the end of the hour at 11 o'clock and then also the names of anyone who calls in during this hour will be put in with the other folks who called in during public affairs this week we'll have a drawing just after five o'clock this evening for amy goodman's newest book democracy now 20 years covering the movements changing america so call you get double chance at winning a book and uh you know that you're helping to keep the media independent call one you can and the cards can go right in there to the to the folks. We have somebody to thank, so we're sending a card in now. Keep the phones ringing, 1-800-643-6273. And uh, as soon as uh, Joel and I are done, we'll put Ron back on, and he will thank whoever that was who just called. George Mitchell, the pride of Maine. I mean, what a great guy he is. What amazing things he and his family has done for this state. And to uh, be discussing that here locally is just a wonderful thing another example of the great research and and work that they do ahead of these programs i mean you've got to get the guests you got to get the right day the right time it's not an easy thing to do to come in here and do an hour show 1-800-643-6273 support the efforts of these fine uh, public affairs producers because uh, they're so much part of the sound of WERU. 1-800-643-6273 or pledge online safely and securely at WERU.org. And we need some more new members as well. We have 53 more new members to go to meet our goal for this week. So if you are someone considering becoming a member, maybe you've been on Talk of the Towns, maybe your kids have been on Talk of the Towns. I, as we talk about Talk of the Towns, I think about the time that I pulled in. I think there were two school buses in the parking that's lot. Right, that's right. Kids are running a prime decision. Like, ah. And they but, had a great time. Yeah, they did. I mean, and get so many people through here and experiencing radio. So we need to get you into the, the club. So we say 1-800-643-6273. Become a member. When you become a member, you listen so much more uh, effectively and you just become a part of it. You feel a part of it. You feel the ownership in the radio station. And it is the community's resource and it's the community that supports it uh, behind the microphone, behind the scenes. And uh, it's just a great, wonderful thing that's been uh, an experiment for 28 years, going strong because of you. 1-800-643-6273. Okay, and we're going to toss things back over to Ron in the studio. 1-800-643-6273. Thanks so much, uh, Amy and Joel, for your help with this uh, uh, pledge drive and all the volunteers who are doing that. We have um, a renewal to thank, um, and their name will go in the watering can for the uh, Douglas Rooks book, Statesman, George Mitchell, and the Art of the Possible. You can be in that watering can as well. Uh, but we have a renewal from MainSeabirdTours.com, and we're so glad for their support. Um, we're talking with Doug Rooks about his new book. Um, Doug, I've, I've quoted George uh, Santayana um, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. When I read your book of George Mitchell's time in the U.S. Congress, I was struck on with how many of the issues he dealt with continue today. And for many younger 
citizens, um, it must seem as though the past didn't exist. We, you know, we've got these issues now. Mm-hmm. There is no past, but th- there is. And as you researched the book, did you have similar thoughts about some of these things? Are there some things that are repeating uh, issues today that you wish Mitchell had been able to solve? Well, you know, you can only solve them for your own time. I think this is I, – I was referring earlier to um, – uh, Mitchell's rewriting of the Clean Air Act, a mm-hmm. particularly important one in light of global warming, because that is really the basis that we have for the clean power plan that President Obama has. It's all in the Clean Air Act of 1990. But clearly, there needs to be another Clean Air Act, and this is the challenge for the next Congress. Uh, I think this is going to be the best opportunity we're going to have in a while, uh, because there will be some realignment down there. We're not sure exactly what the dimensions and scope and who's going to be in charge. But it's a real opportunity to do some of the things. But so much of the really important legislation that uh, George Mitchell and uh, the Republican leader Bob Dole and others worked on at the time, tax reform, um, immigration reform, um, the Clean Air and the Clean Water Act, all of these things are are badly in need of updating. You know, the immigration of 1986 is not like the immigration of today, simply to reflect the reality of what our country is dealing with. You know, people say you got to do something. Well, you do. Congress needs to pass legislation that deals with this. So, you know, but we seem to go through these periods of, you know, of, of achievement and then, you know, stagnation perhaps, uh, or at least stasis. And we're ready for another burst of effective lawmaking in Augusta. And I'm not sure whether people really believe in that, but it, it has to be done. And in my experience, because of really the greatness of our political democracy, when we really have to do something, whether it's fighting World War II or conquering, trying to conquer cancer or send somebody to the moon, we figure out a way to do it. So I think the priorities are pretty clear at this point. So the issue is, can we have another team like Mitchell and Dole um, in the Senate, perhaps, um, that will you know, and once you start taking action, it becomes so much easier to do other things too. Mm. This sense of stagnation, of blockade, of of constant filibuster is very negative for everything because it doesn't seem like anything can get done. But if you can do one thing, you can usually do some other things. Mm. That that relationship between Mitchell and Dole, which you write about, um, it seems to be that's the that basis for anything that we have to have a relationship in order to get things done. Well, I, I realized that there was probably no hope uh, for the U.S. <laughs> Senate uh, after 2010 when I realized now that at that point uh, the Democrats were still in the majority in the Senate for a couple more years. Um, but in Mitchell and Dole's time, there was a hotline. They installed a hotline, and um, you know, and if Dole called, Mitchell would pick it up right away, even if he was in the middle of a meeting. Um, the hotline, of course, is no more, but it was very striking to me when I read in the Washington Post, I think it was, that during the first three months of the next session, three months, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid had not met. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, mm. how can you get anything done if the leaders are not even meeting? Mm. Now, whether that was strictly accurate or not, clearly, you know, Dole and Mitchell met every single day and sometimes several times a day because that's the only way to get a body like the Senate moving. Mm. So, you know, it's it's back to basics. I mm. think if we paid more attention to the basics of politics, some of the rest of the the noise <laughs> would filter out and would work out. I really well, do. I actually um, um, I, I do want to ask you about the writing of the book, but I want to um, take that point of, of relationship building um, to Mitchell's work in Northern Ireland. If we mm. could, if we could move to that section of his his life, he he ended his 
um, U.S. political career early, as, yes. as many would say. Yeah. Um, but then he got asked to help out with a couple of majorings. And, and yep. let's start with um, the situation in Northern Ireland. Well, Ireland was interesting because initially there was some concern. Mitchell didn't get much of an appointment there initially. Mm. He was running like what seemed to be a trade meeting between the various the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. But I think there was a plan all along. Bill Clinton really wanted him to do this. Clinton was more much more important to the process than I think he's often given credit for. He foresaw the possibilities. He had had talked extensively to the leaders of both Ireland and and uh, the United Kingdom, so he knew it was possible if he got the right person. And he thought George Mitchell was the right person. And having tried to appoint him to the Supreme Court, I think he probably believed a lot in Mitchell. And you know, which was not the outline for success, but it was the outline for possibility. So you know, he had um, you know a unusual situation in Ireland in the sense that these parties had been fighting each other beyond the lifetimes of anyone then alive. But. There were some changes and Belfast, the violence levels were more sporadic rather than constant. Um, and there were a lot of political parties. Now, some people think we should have a bunch of political parties too. I think it's probably not possible except in a parliamentary system. But Northern Ireland, which is a, is a, is in geographically not much larger than Maine and its population is not much bigger, had I think there were something like 27 political parties, <laughs> mm-hmm. and 10 of them were at the peace talks. So it seems cha- like chaos, but everybody had a party that was pretty much exactly like they were. So they had a lot of choices, and when you can start forming coalitions, which, again, Mitchell is very good at, you could actually exploit some of the differences between the parties as well as places they could come together. So very gradually, um, behind the scenes mostly, he was able to build the trust that you need to come up with an agreement, which a lot of people are not going to like, frankly. Mm. I mean, Mm. the people who had been doing all the fighting there for a long time didn't want to stop. They really believed in fighting. And when one party, um, one uh, person walked away, Mitchell didn't let that stop the yeah. process. Well, the walkouts were actually – see, I, I, I learned a little bit about Irish politics, and the walkout apparently is one of the big gestures. You know, <laughs> People are always walking out right. for various reasons, and right. it's very dramatic, and then they either come back or they don't. But actually what the, one of the turning points of, of the talks was clearly when Ian Paisley – uh, the firebrand leader of the Ulsterites. You know, these were people who who were who were allied with Great Britain as well as being, you know, Protestants, and the Protestants run everything. It's a very complicated political scene there. But Ian Paisley f- believed that when he walked out, his partners in other parties would follow him, and they did not. And that turned out to be the critical turning point because without Paisley in the room. Um, agreement turned out to be possible. Mm. So, you know, again, Mitchell was able to use some of the tactics of others and kind of judicious the situations to his advantage. Mm. And this was at a time when Mitchell um, was facing a personal um, crisis as well. He was. He was. It was a very difficult year for him, particularly at the start. His brother Robbie died. Um, and a little later on, uh, his wife Heather lost the child she was carrying. And I, you know, I mean, he really considered quitting. I think he was honest in saying that that he did. And uh, his his wife basically said, "If you don't go back, 
you'll never forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the words he needed at the time. But, you know, we all have personal lives, and, uh, and it's amazing that Mitchell worked through that period as well as he did. Mm. You're listening to Talk of the Towns, our wonderful conversation with uh, reporter Doug Rooks, whose new book is a biography of George Mitchell. It's called Statesman. It's published by Downey's Press. George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible. And uh, those of you who call in during the show to pledge um, will have an opportunity to, to uh, have us send you a copy of, of, of this new biography. Uh, so please give our uh, pledge phone a, a call, 1-800-643-6273. Doug, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the writing of the book. Um, were there some challenges that you faced? Um, you said that you, you had an idea um, back in 2001 or so, and, 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 and what, what were some of the challenges you faced? Well, the, the, I think the biggest challenge um, was the sheer massiveness of the material that I confronted. I had no idea there was so much about George Mitchell, and, and not just the documents. I expected that. Um, I didn't go through all the documents. I had to be selective as to what I thought the, the most important episodes in his career were, because literally you would have just – I never would have gotten out of the archives <laughs> if, I'd, if I'd tried to do everything, and I didn't. But the other thing that was a huge and complex um, kind of mosaic about his life was the oral histories. Now, I was generally familiar with the concept of oral history, but I didn't perceive the power of oral histories in quantity. And there are more than 300 interviews with people who knew Mitchell in the Bowdoin archives, and there's about 500 about in the Muskie archives at Bates, people who knew Muskie. Now, not all of those were useful to me, but many of them were, and sometimes because they you know, succeeded each other in Washington, they were the same people talking about both Muskie and Mitchell, which was very useful. So it was just a huge amount of stuff to try to synthesize and boil down. And, you know, the readers will have to judge whether I did that sufficiently or not. You know, I tried uh, to, to include only the most valuable parts of what I learned about it. But that was the biggest challenge. I mean, I spent 13 months in the Bowdoin College Library and then realized that if I didn't start writing the book, uh, it probably wouldn't get done. And I needed to do that. So the, the, re- the skills of a reporter um, applied to the skills of a biographer are similar but different. They are similar. Um, I think the big difference is, is again, time. Mm-hmm. You know, a reporter is generally writing either for daily publication, weekly publication, these days, hourly publication. Um, it's a very daunting task to be as thorough as I tried to be here. Um, but there was another skill that was, I was glad that when I was in college, I'd done research on historical subjects and stuff, because the research skills that you need to do a book are a little different than reporters are primarily oral. People tell them things and they sort it out. And yes, they use documents, but usually as a supplement. Um, With Mitchell, it was really useful to have lots of documents and lots of talk, as it were, because you get a much more um, richer picture of what was going on. Because, you know, the documents can tell you names, dates, facts, you know, times, things that people forget. So it's very useful to have it written down that you can really say, well, this couldn't have happened then because look at the date. Um, however, what documents don't tell you is the human aspect, how people felt, what they said about each other, um, and, and the, or, the oral history interviews. And many interviews I did myself were very helpful in filling in those pictures and making it a more human story. Mm. We do have a um, question from a listener who's um, emailed us at uh, the uh, public affairs at weru.org. That's the email address, publicaffairs at weru.org. And the question is from Greg. He says, if George Mitchell had become a Supreme Court justice, how would the court be different? 
how do you feel he would have ruled on Citizens United? <laughs> Um, I think we know how we would have ruled on that because he has criticized the decision. And in fact, he predicted that it will one day be overturned. That was very interesting. That was that was something new that I didn't know George Mitchell was saying in public, but he has said this. Um, so that that's one decision for sure. But I think the court itself would have been much different. You know, I think the really unfortunate part of, you know, however you think it got there, but the current court is very divided. I mean, people talk about the country being divided. I'm not so sure. I think there are people who have increased our divisions and seem to benefit from our divisions, even where they shouldn't be there. And, you know, public opinion is is nearly unanimous on some subjects, and we still can't get a bill through Congress. So that mm -hmm. tells you something about. But I do believe that the Supreme Court is deeply divided, and there is much less sense of collegiality than there once was there. Because these people have very important work. They are the third branch of government, and their rule is law. That's a, you know, there's not much appeal to the Supreme Court for anybody, president, congressman, whatever, ordinary citizens. So it's very important that they be to some degree above the fray. And I think you can see just from the wor wording of many of the decisions that have come down recently, that quality is very strange. So Mitchell's, um, Mitchell's task, had he become chief justice, now that was an interesting point. He turned down this, the, uh, the associate justice role he was offered, but one of his very close friends and associates, Burl Bernhardt, his law partner, said, you know, I think if it had been chief justice, he would have gone for it. Uh -huh. And, you know, he might have. Because and I think he could have been a very fine chief justice. The chief justice sets the tone of the court. And, you know, um, th that role is as important as anything because they all have the same votes, just mm -hmm. like in the Senate. And I think he somehow would have done better with that than some of the other people who've held that post mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your writing of the book, um, you were able to access many, many people um, in, the, in, the, in the process. And I, I know that uh, um, Mike Hastings, who was on Senator Mitchell's staff early on, will be introducing you at the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor at 7 o'clock tonight. Um, tell us a little about what you, how you found these folks and, and what, what your access to those folks were. You know, I don't think anybody turned me down, which um, wasn't terribly surprising because, you know, the, the subject of George Mitchell kind of brings people together. But, um, you know, some of the people I interviewed fascinated me because I realized there's, there's a main world of George Mitchell, which I knew fairly well, and then there was a Washington world of George Mitchell, which I knew almost nothing about. Many of the people who worked for him there um, – you know, are from Washington. Some of them have gone on to other postings at other Senate offices uh, in the federal bureaucracy and even in the private sector there. So that really was challenging because I had to understand how he functioned in a world that I had no political personal familiarity with. I knew this, the legislature in the State House and the Blaine House very well because I had reported on them for many years. Uh, the ways of Congress are very mysterious to the outsider. So um, but they were unfailingly helpful, and um, I, I think I note them in my book. There were some who went above and beyond in terms of asking. I, I would ask a lot of follow-up questions. They would faithfully answer them. Um, and everybody was just incredibly helpful. Um, there are mistakes in the book. I'm, some of them are being pointed out in the reviews already. Um, <laughs> and I knew there would be because you simply can't do all of this and encompass all this without making a few goose. And um, but it wasn't the fault of the people I was talking to. They tried mm. very hard. Mm. And and uh, you have uh, talked about the the Washington staff as as folks who knew they had the best job in the world when they had it. Mm. Say more about that relationship between George Mitchell and his staff. 
Well, I think Mitchell was a good person to work for in the sense that um, there's a quote that I, I think I jotted down in my notes here that I like a lot. Um, he was very friendly with the staff. Um, he didn't get mad at them as often as Muskie's uh, staff. <laughs> and some of them were them. had had um, served with Muskie. And, and some of them had yes. Right. And and Mitchell knew talent. You know, he developed. There was a woman named Anita Jensen who became his speechwriter. Uh, she died fairly recently. I was fortunately able to interview her just a few months before that happened. Boy, what a corker! Mm. <laughs> I mean, she just was the feistiest person. I mean. You know, it seems totally unlike Mitchell, and yet he recognized her abilities. She could write a, a good speech faster than anyone else, and she, her, her attitudes were very cavalier about some things. But and, and when he didn't like her drafts, he didn't use them. But, um, but he was able to develop talent, and I think the thing that's interesting to note with the Washington people particularly is um, his foreign affairs aide, who is a very talented woman named Sarah Sewell, who is uh, from a very prominent Republican family in Bath that he hired, um, and has gone on to serve as Deputy Secretary of State for President Obama. And she said um, she always wanted to be closer to Mitchell um, than she was. She was very young, when she, and she, she really, you know, she said, I had to put myself inside his head to be able to write for him, you know, all of the, all of the many papers you have to do about foreign policy that she was doing. But she said, um, although she wanted to be closer, she realized that the correctness of the relationship had the edge of discipline. And so everybody worked well and hard, but they were very directed. You know, there was not a lot of fooling around and a lot of wasted time here. And I think that's rare in government or in the private sector or anywhere else. You know, there is always a lot of downtime in most jobs mm. and, and people working uh, cross purposes. But mental staff worked very effectively and they had a lot of good stuff to work on. You know, uh, congressional staffs like legislation. They wish we could pass more of it, you know. So, and Mitchell, Mitchell did an amazing amount there on a lot of subjects that people don't even remember anymore uh, very effectively. So his staff um, was a generally uh, satisfied outfit, but they look back on it with nostalgia because they have not had those situations since then. Mm. What was your relationship with Senator Mitchell as you wrote this book? An interesting question, because I, I had to think a lot about that. I think it was actually, in the end, helpful that he was writing a book, too. Uh, his memoirs came out just about a year before my biography. And uh, it was kind of, his was delayed some, but mine was delayed some. So they, 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 they had the same approximate positions. And um, what I really had to, re had to think about hard was, here's a living person. It's tough writing about a living person because, A, they're still doing things. They're still influencing things. Um, he is 82 years old now, but he's still very active. And he might do something really notable for which there might need to be a new edition of the book. I mean, you never know. <laughs> That's right. You really never know. But, um, so, but the advantage of having a living subject is you can talk to them. You know, you can ask them, you know, can you resolve this dispute among your age? You know, one says this and one says that. But I kind of realized that if I did that, I would be involving him almost in the actual writing of the book, and I couldn't do this. This It was very important to me, and I think it was probably important to Senator Mitchell as the author of, of several books of his own, that it really be an independent look at him. So I tried to maintain that balance and that distance that Sarah Sewell was talking about, and I hope I succeeded because um, there are definitely parts of the book that can be read as critical of Mitchell, um, and I didn't shy away from that. Um, but clearly, I mean, I admire the man because mm. I probably wouldn't have done the book otherwise. Sure, sure. Well, um, as we begin to wrap up the hour, um, we're talking with Douglas Rook, 
Jones, author of George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible, a book called Statesman by Downey's Press. Um, we spoke about some of the elements in Maine and the larger society that fostered Mitchell's leadership. Um, what, do you th- what do you suppose has been happening in, in the state and in the nation that led to such um, backlash of, of the kind of leadership he provided? The, the, the notion of building consensus is actually looked down upon now. Well, I, I don't think there's a backlash against that kind of leadership. I think there has been a failure of leadership. Okay. And, you know, I want to be sensitive to my Republican friends. I do have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, frankly, the departure of George Mitchell from the Senate after a very brilliant six years um, and the the onset of Newt Gingrich with a not just a different kind of politics. The problem with Newt Gingrich is not that he's a Republican or that he's conservative. You know, his policies, his contract with America doesn't add up to anything. It's not a it's not a means for getting, you know, an adjusted government from whatever the Democrats did you don't like. It's just chaotic. And he you know, he poll tested it. Well, you can get a lot of, comp- you know, you can get a lot of, of um, things that people say they're for, but of course, they're not a system. It's like healthcare. You know, people want to get rid of the unpopular aspects of Obamacare. The unpopular aspects are things like the individual mandate, clearly, the taxes on medical devices. Um, you know, these are all things that make the thing work. With, without money, you can't run a program, so you have to raise it somewhere. It's never popular to have taxes, particularly not new taxes, but without them, there is no system. And I think the problem we've seen in terms of leadership since George Mitchell left is that there's very little principle and a whole lot of expediency in what everyone is doing, and that's both parties, both sides, the White House, Congress. And that's how things have run downhill, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. Uh, not because people didn't like cooperation and didn't like compromise. Um, People still like those things. They'd like to see them. But the conditions for creating them have disappeared, Mm. at least temporarily. And you said that if you do something together, it feels good, it works, and you do other things together. So that's what we need. We need some of those little steps. We we need something like the Dole-Mitchell relationship. We need something like a recognition that the Congress has responsibilities and so does the White House. It's not one side or the other, and it's particularly not you telling other people what they need to do. Mm. You need to concentrate on what you need to do. Mm. Mm. And so a f- kind of a final question um, is, is the notion of, of current politics of, of Governor Page and Trump have a kind of a brand of how they do their, their work as politicians. What counsel might we take from reading George Mitchell's book about how to move beyond that kind of politics? We have cycles in our history and in our politics. And if people are tired of that particular kind of politics, they'll vote for something else. Mm. I mean, I do think this is one of the – we kind of overthink sometimes. We have to think we have to have these people or this Mm. system or this bill. Really what we need to do is trust ourselves. Um, I actually – you know, one thing that I would say from the very beginning to the end of – to the middle of my journalistic career, (laughs) still doing some of it, is that I end up – having a pretty high opinion of voters. Um, A lot of people don't. They think they're stupid, they're ignorant, they're misled. But I think in the aggregate, voters are actually pretty smart and they come to good decisions. And we have some major decisions to make this November. Mm -hmm. I hope we do 
I hope we do well. Okay. Well, Doug, thanks so much for being with us um, this morning. Um, I know that you're speaking, um, and you've got a kind of a book tour. So um, any besides Bar Harbor, anything that our did, listeners should know about? Did, did we mention the library appearance tonight? Yes, we did that. We did. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm around. I'm in uh, Rockland next week. I'm in Augusta the following Saturday. I mean, there are a lot. Okay. I, I've, I enjoy these events. Um, I think they're going to get exhausting eventually, <laughs> but so far, it's so fun to, as a writer, it's very, it's a lot of fun to connect with real life people out there who have either read your stuff or are interested in your stuff and want to talk about it. And that's, um, so that's, the next, the next event is, is the Jessup Memorial Library in Bar Harbor tonight at, at seven. seven. Thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind listeners that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association with offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second Friday morning of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnaise House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guest in the studio, Douglas Rook, author of a new book called Statesman, George Mitchell and the Art of the Possible by Down East Press. Thanks to those of you who emailed us, and we should say that there's only one name in the watering can, and that one name will get um, a copy of, of uh, Douglas Rook's new book, and that's MainSeabirdTours.com. So we'll be glad to send a book out to them. And uh, um, thanks to our underwriters, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.